Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, an interview with Patrick Mason. Now, Patrick Mason is a person who probably needs little to no introduction to most of my listening audience. By way of brief background, Patrick Mason is an American historian, and now I'm going from his own Wikipedia page. Patrick Mason is an American historian who is the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University, and formerly was the Howard W. Hunter Chair in Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University in Claremont, California. Professor Mason was in that post from 2011 to 2018. Patrick Mason earned a Master of Arts in History and International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame in 2003. He then received a doctorate in history there in 2005. Professor Mason has published a number of articles and been cited in a number of sources on various aspects of Mormonism. He is perhaps best known among Mormons for his book, Planted, which is subtitled, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. That book was published in 2015. Bill Reel has previously interviewed Professor Mason relating to his book and other subjects on Mormon Discussions podcast. And about a year ago, Bill Reel was able to get Professor Mason to sit down for an interview relating to different difficult and thorny issues about Mormonism in the current age. There are five specific issues that Bill Reel wanted to talk to Patrick Mason about, and Bill Reel was kind enough to invite me along for the ride so that I could ask questions of Professor Mason. And Professor Mason was kind enough to put up with me. I had never spoken directly with Professor Mason before, but based upon this experience, it is clear to me that he is both a scholar and a gentleman, that he does not resent or shy away from hard questions. And believe me, I was laying on with the hard questions. But this is not a gotcha kind of interview. This is not a debate in which one side seeks to convert the other side. Instead, the point of this interview was to find out Professor Mason's position on several LDS issues. And once again, those five issues have to do, in general terms, with areas in which the LDS Church has told one story for pretty much all of its history, but now, due to the advent of the internet and the free flow of information that goes along with it, the LDS Church has been forced to confront some of the more negative or problematic aspects of its history and adjust its story of its own history accordingly. So what happened is that on the afternoon of October 2nd, 2018, yes, just a little bit over a year ago, it being now, as of the time of this recording, October 17th, 2019, Patrick Mason was kind enough to make time in his schedule to sit down in his office at Claremont University. He was still at Claremont University at the time of this recording, and speak with Bill Reel and an anonymous podcaster named Radio Free Mormon regarding several such issues. Now, you may be wondering why it is that over a year has gone by before we are publishing this interview with Patrick Mason. Well, the reason why is because of this. The entire interview with Patrick Mason took about two hours and 40 minutes. Bill Reel was recording the entire interview on his end. I was recording the entire interview on my end. And when we got done with the interview and hung up the phone with Patrick Mason, Bill Reel found out to his chagrin that his recording had stopped about 54 minutes into the two-hour and 40-minute interview. Well, it was a good thing that I was recording on my end as well. But then I looked at my recording, and strangely, my recording stopped at the same time as Bill Reel's recording did. We're still scratching our heads over this. We don't understand what blip occurred that caused both of our recordings to stop at the same time. 
in the last year, we have tried unsuccessfully to be able to reschedule another interview with Patrick Mason because he has now taken on his new position at the University of Utah. He is indeed a very busy gentleman. We were hoping to once again go over the same ground as we had in the first interview and present the interview in its entirety on all five issues. That has not yet happened. We're still hoping it will happen in the future. But in the meantime, we're taking the first 54 minutes or so of the interview that we had with Patrick Mason from last year, and we'll be presenting that part of the interview after I'm done with these introductory comments. The first issue that Bill Reel brought up and that we discussed with Patrick Mason was that of Joseph Smith's translation projects, whether it was the Book of Mormon, whether it was the Book of Moses, the Joseph Smith translation, and also the Book of Abraham. This ends up being what is, to my mind, a very interesting high-level discussion about the issues surrounding Joseph Smith's translation projects and how to make sense of them given all the information that has come to light since they were produced and which seems to locate at least large sections of these translation projects in Joseph Smith's own culture and environment. And specifically to find out where it is that Patrick Mason stands on these issues and how it is that he deals with these very real issues in his faith journey and how he incorporates them in his faith system. Even though both Bill Reel and I were extremely disappointed that the interview in its entirety did not manage to record, I am happy to report that at least the entirety of the discussion on the first issue with Patrick Mason was recorded. That's what you'll be listening to here in just a moment. Well, that's enough of an introduction. Let's get to the interview, at least the first 54 minutes of the interview with Patrick Mason. Here we go from October 2nd, 2018. Play the tape. Hello. Patrick, how are you? Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Uh, Radio Free Mormon is the other guy that's in this interview. Oh, I'm hoping just to have a chance to kind of kind of go over the things we talked about. And uh, like I told you, I promise you'll you'll come away uh, without you and I having felt like we were attacking each other in any way. I just want to have a good conversation that people feel is productive because I think we're in this moment where Mormonism is drastically changing and nobody on the ins wants to say that's happening. Mm. Um, and and so I, it'll be interesting to kind of see maybe what your thoughts are. Uh, RFM, are you there? I'm here, Bill. How are you doing? Awesome. Awesome. Are you recording good on your end? You got everything up and running? Yes. Hang on just a second. Let me make sure <laughs> I hit everything. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Am I, am I good? I think we're good. Uh, do you have any questions for me, uh, Patrick, before we start? So I'll refer to you as Bill. How should I refer to Radio Free Mormon? You can either just call him RFM or Radio Free or whatever. Okay. You know, the anonymous guy who nobody knows who he is, you can do that. It All doesn't right. matter to me. Behind the curtain. Professor, That's right. First off, Professor Mason, hey, very happy to meet you, even if it's only over a recording. Uh, I have not read everything you've written, but I've read a lot of it. Very impressed. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, likewise, pleasure to meet you. All right. So let's uh, let's get started. Patrick Mason, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bill. Good. Glad to have you on. We are here today with Radio Free Mormon and Patrick Mason. Patrick Mason is the Howard W. Hunter Chair in, uh, of Mormon Studies at Claremont U uh, Graduate University. Uh, I know, Patrick, I've read your book, Planted. Beautiful book. It's Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. You've been on the podcast a couple of times before. Um, you've also written other books, The Mormon Menace, Violence and Anti-Mormonism in the Postbellum South. 
any other projects you're currently working on that the listeners should maybe be aware of? Yeah, well, I uh, published a book last year called What is Mormonism, which is kind of a intro to Mormonism textbook. It's aimed at college students, but I think there's maybe a few things that, that other people would learn as well. And then actually just yesterday, I put the finishing touches on a short little manuscript on Mormonism and violence. Uh, so it, it looks at violence both in the Book of Mormon and in Mormon history. So that'll come out with Cambridge University Press hopefully in a year or so. Perfect, perfect. And, and like the book Planted, where uh, you, Patrick, I think do a beautiful job of being a voice on the inside of Mormonism, but having empathy and understanding for people who are hurting. And I reached out to you a few weeks ago because with everything that's going on with Sam Young and with, with Elder Cook and Matt Grow and Kate Holbrook talking about the, the new book, Saints, it seems like the church is in a deep moment of transition, and a lot of people are hurting uh, as they're trying to figure out, like, hey, I grew up with this Mormonism, and now I'm running into something else. And it looks like the church is changing parts of its story, its foundational story in, in ways. And we wanted to have you on today to hit on some of that. So I'll jump right into it. The first question I want to ask you, Patrick, um, has to do with Joseph's translation productions. And so uh, we know, you know, Joseph produces uh, through translation the, the Book of Mormon. He produces the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham. He, he produces the inspired translation of the Bible. And kind of as an offset, there's also the Kinderhook plates, which we know was a, someone tried to scam him, and it didn't seem like it got very far. Um, but what I want to make as a point to kind of start off this conversation, I want to frame this question hopefully the right way. And, and that is that the Book of Mormon, whether it's Richard Bushman, whether it's Sam Brown, whether I think you've mentioned things in the past, uh, so have others – that book contains a ton of 19th century material. Not that it doesn't contain ancient ideas there or things that at least seem like they're ancient as well. I want to grant that. But in having a ton of 19th century material, phraseology, theology, and then we move on to the book of Abraham and recognizing that the listeners are going to say like, yeah, I understand the mess that's there with what Joseph said that was and what it turned out to be in terms of the Egyptian papyri. We know from the book of Moses that a lot of that phraseology is borrowed heavily uh, from the New Testament books of Matthew and Luke. And then now, just recently, the inspired translation of the Bible, we now have uh, scholarship coming out of BYU, of all places, that says that uh, we're going to have to revisit that because it looks like the inspired translation has a lot of direct borrowing, which is a soft way of saying plagiarism, um, from Clark's commentary. And so now, as Mormons, we've been taught our whole lives that these things were translated, and that translation meant a certain thing. And it now feels like we're having to adapt to each of these translation productions being, at least in part, and I want to at least make the space for maybe even completely uh, a 19th century product borrowing from contemporary sources or at least sources that would have come uh, unconnected to what the ancient proposed authors would have had access to. And I know that's a tough question. And I know that was a lot of jargon <laughs> people, but Patrick, your thoughts there. Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, start off and then feel free to follow up if I, if I miss anything uh, as, as we go along. So, so let's start with the, the book of Mormon. Uh, I, I think 
that that any kind of serious student of it will uh, w- who is aware of these kinds of questions uh, will will have to grapple with the fact and, and admit that there do seem to be a lot of uh, 19th century uh, aspects uh, to the book. It certainly addresses a number of the issues that were alive at the time of Joseph Smith and sort of pressing for American Christianity. Uh, some of some of the phraseology, some of, some of the, uh, the kind of elocutions that are within the Book of Mormon uh, certainly seem to to correspond more with what we know about 19th century America than what we currently know about the ancient world, whether it be the ancient Middle East or the ancient Americas. Um, so so what do we do with that? Well, I, th- I think people have wrestled with this for a long time. This isn't an entirely new issue. I mean, B.H. Roberts uh, wrestled with some of this and other people have over the decades. So this isn't a brand new issue. Um so I, I'll, I'll tell you where I tend to, to fall on on these uh, kinds of issues. So, um, well, I'll back up just to say that you know there have been a, a range of of things suggested by people over the years in terms of explaining this and different theories of translation. I assume that a lot of your leader, a lot of your listeners are aware of these different theories of translation. Everything from what's oftentimes called you know tight control, uh, where where God was was really uh, in, involved in, in a kind of word by word dictation of of the text, and and then in fact in in, in some theories Joseph couldn't proceed until he got the the words right. Uh, so there's a sense that you know God really has has strict uh, control over the the final product as it's dictated to Joseph Smith's scribes. Uh, ranging all the way to uh, uh, loose control, uh, which is that the translation was something of a uh, co-creative process. Uh, in you know, the loose control theory generally presumes that there is some kind of uh, ancient origins or some kind of original text that, that Joseph Smith is tapping into somehow, uh, uh, but that he. Uh, also through the process of inspiration and that he is also a co-creator and that, that he may be also using either ideas that enter into his own mind or, or bringing ideas or language into, uh, into conversation with and even into the language of 19th century, uh, and not just the, the literal language of meaning uh, 19th century American English, but, but the kinds of concepts and problems and, and so forth that, that he would have been grappling with at that time. And, and, and then, and of course, on, on the far side there, some people would just say, well, it's not a translation at all. I mean, it's, a, it's a fictional work that, that all comes out of the mind of Joseph Smith, uh, it has no core correspondence to any, uh, any other text, ancient or otherwise, uh, and, and it just comes out of, of Joseph Smith's mind. It's not really a translation at all. It's just a fictional production. So, so I want to set aside that one just for a moment. Um, uh, or, or, or actually, for, for now, I would say set that aside entirely because I'm, I'm not sure how that fits within uh, a kind of context of faith. I, I mean, I think scholars are available. It's, it's possible for them to approach the Book of Mormon that way and to find value in it as a kind of 19th century literary product and to study it as such, the same way that people study the Bible as literature. They don't have to have any belief in its claims of divine origin in order to encounter it uh, as a profound work of literature. But let's set that aside for a moment because it's not, uh, it doesn't really enter into the realm of, 
realm of faith. And I have to say that, that I'm uh, generally uh, pretty comfortable with, with theories that, that allow for Joseph Smith uh, to have some kind of role in the process. And I'm not, I, I, I don't necessarily think that this was a conscious on his part. Certainly, I don't see any indications from him in the relatively scant uh, statements that, that he made about the, the translation of the Book of Mormon or even of his contemporaries who were around him that suggest that he was conscious of, of any kind of uh, infusing his own thought or language or ideas into the process. But I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that he did. Uh, and partly for me, it, it fits quite well with kind of broader Mormon theologies, uh, uh, some of which sort of emerge later in his life. Um, and through the course of his other revelations, that in fact we believe that as co-eternal beings with God, that we are always co-creators and co-participants with Him uh, in the ongoing act of creation that happens every day. Uh, I, I think within the scriptures themselves, uh, they there's there's a lot of evidence that the prophets within the scriptures. Uh, wrestle with the problem of language and wrestle with the, the problem of, of articulating divine truths in language. And so they, um, so, so I think we, I, I just think that the model that we have, even that the scriptures present of themselves, is of something like a co-participative and co-creating process uh, in which in which the prophet's mind, whether consciously or not, uh, is in some way engaged in it. And and so I think as, as we think about translation, it, it makes a fair bit of sense to me that the translation, the, the product that emerges would have a lot to say about the particular context in which it emerges. Uh, and I, I think that's a harder thing to say if you really believe in a kind of tight control thesis, and, unless you really believe that, in, in fact, Mormon absolutely saw exactly what was going on in the 1830s and was going to address the theological controversies of the 1830s. And so he wrote that into his uh, into ancient plates. And, and I think once you enter into the realm of the supernatural, OK, all, all that is fair to, to think about and talk about. But but I just think as an act of translation, it's it's not at all difficult for me to think about the fact that the Book of Mormon was produced in a time and place to address the concerns and questions of a time and place. Uh, the same way that Jesus's uh, teachings uh, were very much rooted in his time and place, but also have a kind of transcendent quality. And we can read them 2000 years later in a completely different context and culture and still find value in them. I have no problem with the with the Book of Mormon being produced uh, and, and speaking to a particular time and place, but nevertheless having transcendent uh, value beyond that. So I'll stop there if you want to start uh, kind of follow up with any questions. But we can talk about the other books, too, like Abraham and the others. Thanks. I'd love to follow yeah. up with the question, if I could, Professor Mason. Yeah. This is Radio Free Mormon raising his hand from the back row of the auditorium. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you know, I agree with a lot of things that you have to say. I think they're very interesting. But what I wanted to do was take a for instance, if it's okay. Sure. Take the general idea that you've given about Joseph Smith being in some sense uh, participatory in this translation process, giving us the text of the Book of Mormon. And talk specifically about the idea of infant baptism, just as a for instance, because even back to the time of Alexander Campbell, he started noting about how the Book of Mormon tends to address all the burning questions that were in the society and the culture in which the Book of Mormon was brought forth. 
and one of those being infant baptism. Now, I'm going from memory here, correct me if I'm wrong, check me in the audience, but I think that the place in the Book of Mormon that talks about infant baptism in extremely negative terms, in fact, I don't think any more negative language is used in the Book of Mormon than it is about infant baptism to the point where Mormon, the figure Mormon, the character Mormon in the Book of Mormon, is actually stating that if a person should die while in the thought that infants need baptism, just dying in that thought will perish them to hell. So if we look at that one text, and I think that's Mormon chapter 8, the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, where it's being presented once again from recollection as Moroni having written down a particular sermon that was given by his father Mormon on the subject of infant baptism. Uh, if this would be an example of a contemporary issue to Joseph Smith being addressed in the Book of Mormon, and if this is something where Joseph Smith is participating in some way in bringing forth the Book of Mormon in order to address contemporary religious issues in his society, what should we make of the fact, and how does this impact, if it does, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, that Joseph Smith isn't simply, say, putting this as a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenant, saying, thus saith the Lord, but rather, he appears to be putting it in the mouth of a character in the Book of Mormon named Moroni, who was quoting the words of a sermon of another character in the Book of Mormon, being Moroni's father, Mormon. What, do, what am I to make of that, that apparently Moroni is quoting his father, Mormon, which would be sometime in the 3rd or 4th century uh, BCE, no, CE, excuse me, in the Common Era, uh, 1400 years before this was an issue in America. How does that impact historicity, if it does, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a terrific question. So I, what I would say is that even though I'm quite comfortable with uh, a kind of loose translation model of, of Joseph Smith participating in some way uh, uh, in, in the translation, I'm, uh, I'm basically agnostic about where exactly that enters in. And, uh, you know, I'm so, something certainly seemed to pop out uh, more than others. But let's let's take this. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a great question that you raised and a great case study to think through uh, this. It's uh, certainly there's no doubt infant baptism is on the minds of American Christians in the early 19th century with different churches practicing different things. Uh, and uh, so it's it, and people had very strong opinions uh, about it. You're right. Uh, the, the Book of Mormon has very strong language about this and uh, that, that would have echoed some of the things that other people were saying as the various denominations uh, shouted back and forth at one another about the various damnable heresies that they were each uh, engaged in and committed to. So so there's certainly it seems quite comfortable in a 19th century context. But. If we if we take uh, uh, the the possibility of of real historicity of kind of literal historicity uh, into account, and we say okay, so let's let's presume that there really were people in the ancient Americas that the Book of Mormon uh, somehow roughly corresponds uh, to to actual historical events, and there really are people named Mormon and Moroni. Uh, one could surmise that after three or four centuries of Christianity in the New World, that there could have been debates and divisions over uh, Christian liturgies introduced, just as we saw in uh, the ancient uh, Near East after the birth of Christianity, and actually what we get is Christianities, plural, immediately uh, within the first century 
of of the birth of the movement. And so uh, it's 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 not necessarily so. All, what I'm saying is that that the fact that Mormon is talking about infant baptism does not necessarily mean for me that that's wildly anachronistic, because I can imagine using the Book of Mormon's own historical logic that the same kind of debates uh, could have arisen in the early uh, Christian church in the New World as arose in the Old World. Now, I'm not saying that's clinching. I'm not saying that's proof for historicity, uh, you know, a kind of strict historicity of the Book of Mormon. But but I can enter into, I can do the thought experiment both ways. Uh, and and it, it could, and that particular passage can lead me either towards thinking about the way that the ancient church worked in, in the New World, or that, hey, that this is clearly a place uh, where Joseph Smith, it, sort of based on the logic and based on the theology that is sketched out elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, uh, of, of the passages he had already translated that are so heavily invested in the doctrines of agency uh, and personal accountability and choice uh, as, as a, a key part of discipleship, um, that this could be Joseph Smith sort of spinning out that theology addressing an issue of his day and putting it in in the words of of this character mormon slash moroni so i i can see this going either way and again i personally i, I know other people are going to feel strongly one way or the other but i personally it's, it's just not always an entirely clear to me where i can say oh yeah that's obviously joseph smith or yeah obviously that's that's an ancient source because uh, it's it's not always entirely clear to me Okay, I think I hear what you're saying. Uh, sorry, Bill. Can I just do one follow-up? I'm not yep. trying to steal your show, Bill. I apologize, really. Um, but, uh, Professor Mason, I appreciate the thought experiment, and I understand what, I, what you're saying. Um, we've already, I think, agreed that there is a certain amount, perhaps a great deal, of 19th century uh, American phraseology, perhaps theology, found in the Book of Mormon. My question then, my follow-up question would be, is there any 19th century theology or phraseology in the Book of Mormon, in your opinion, Professor Mason, that could not be accounted for by the same thought experiment of perhaps thinking or supposing or proposing that the same type of religious conflicts or discussions were going on among the Nephites at the time they represented as occurring in the Book of Mormon as they were in Joseph Smith's society when the Book of Mormon was produced? That's a great question. I've never thought about it exactly in those terms, so I'm not going to have a specific answer for you. Um, uh, so I'd be happy to respond sort of case by case, but as, I, as I'm thinking about it, um, you know, I, I think one of the big questions that people have is the pervasive Christianity of the Book of Mormon before Christ in, in, in a way that is um, uh, to totally separate from what we see in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Again, entering into the Book of Mormon's own logic, you can, uh, you, can, you can see why that would be the case. But this has been one thing that people have always pointed to. It says that obviously the Book of Mormon can't correspond to anything historical because you can't have Christians and Christianity several hundred years before Jesus. Um, but again, the Book of Mormon has its own account for why, in fact, you can. So... Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think I'll have to punt on that question only because I haven't thought about it exactly in the terms that, that, that you've asked it. Um, again, not afraid of, of engaging the, the question, but I, uh, 
But, uh, yeah, yeah that's, where, that's where I'll leave it, unless you want to talk about something else specific. Oh, and I appreciate that, but the, the only thing I'm getting at is that I'm concerned that some listeners might take your response to thought experiment on uh, Mormon Chapter 8 about infant baptism and think, well, is this going to be a Band-Aid that Professor Mason feels that he can use for any time in the Book of Mormon when 19th century American uh, issues are being brought up? Sure. That's, that's something that could have been brought up within the Book of Mormon amongst the participants in the Book of Mormon anyway, and thereby um, explain how the Book of Mormon can nevertheless be 100% historical. Yeah, no, okay. That's a, yeah, so I definitely appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's the same way that I feel very uncomfortable with the way that we oftentimes um, approach the Bible using the eighth article of faith, um, that anything we don't like, we just say it's not translated correctly, <laughs> right? Um, and that's not a particularly uh, rigorous uh, hermeneutic. And so, so that's why I'd really want to dive in case by case. I mean, I, and, and so what I, um, what, what I'm suggesting is that personally, as a believer, I am open to the possibility of a kind of rich and deep historicity of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I personally am not persuaded uh, that what we that what we get in the published text uh, is some kind of word for word correspondence with an ancient text. I, I sort of feel and sense a, a, a kind of uh, 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 unconscious uh, influence of, of Joseph Smith and the 19th century in the text. Um, but what I'm saying is that I'm not immediately willing to, to just kind of throw up my hands and say, obviously, yeah, that's a 19th centuryism uh, and so forth, because I do think that the Book of Mormon has its own logic. And I think if we're going to ask these kinds of questions fairly, I think we have to enter into the Book of Mormon's logic and at least say, how would it answer that question? Uh, and then also offer other possibilities and alternatives as well. So, so, so I'm not at any point I, I could look at a text and I say, you know what? Yeah, that, that feels to me a little more Joseph Smithy than Mormony. Um, but, but I'm, um, but, but I also think there's a, a kind of responsibility that we have to have to the text as well. Awesome. Um, as I'm sitting here thinking about the original question and then kind of the path we've gone down as we've talked around it is the idea that in the Book of Mormon, Joseph says there's these metal plates and they came from Moroni uh, and we're translating them by the gift and power of God. And, and obviously listeners recognize like what the translation method is, a stone or spectacles varies, whether the plates are in view, what the various witnesses say about the translation process. But at the bare minimum, it seems like Joseph at least thinks that the narrative is on these metal plates. Now, when we get to the book of Abraham, more so, right? Joseph says this right. is the writing of Abraham, written by his own hand. And what we end up with is the Egyptian doesn't translate to the book of Abraham. And there's lots of other surrounding evidence that Joseph got the facsimiles deeply wrong, that he got the Egyptian characters deeply wrong. And so... On the inside of the church, in order to build a space where it's it doesn't fall apart, we've come up with an idea such as the catalyst theory. And there's another one, the missing scroll, but I think if 
my gut tells me as I look at all the evidence and the data that just doesn't fit, that, that we kind of know where Joseph's translating from on the papyrus, and, and that is what we have, and that doesn't translate to the book of Abraham. So we have this catalyst theory which says that, yes, Joseph thought he was translating the papyri. Joseph thought it was the writing of Abraham. God allowed him to believe that and essentially allowed Joseph to be deceived. Not that God deceived him, but that he allowed Joseph to be deceived thinking one thing when actually something else was happening. And and then when I add to that, <clears throat> again, the book of Moses, which borrows so heavily from Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the phraseology, the sentence structure, what it seems like, if I'm just being like as rational as I can be recognizing that not always is the rational answer, or the reasonable answer, the right one, that there's sometimes where that's not, but it seems reasonable to think that Joseph wanted the reader to think these translation productions came a certain way. Uh, for instance, again, the inspired translation of the Bible, he borrows from Adam Clark. He doesn't tell anybody he's doing that. And we're, we're taught in the church, this narrative that ancient concepts are being restored but that's a very different thing than simply taking the prominent uh, biblical commentary of the day and taking another human being's ideas and putting it into the book. It feels, Patrick, when I look at these these four productions collectively and then even make a little space for the Kinderhook plates as a fifth, it feels like at every single one of these, Joseph Smith, or at the very minimum, the church, told us a story and now that we have the information in our face, that story is very different from the narrative we were told on each of these productions individually, and even a bigger deal when we look at them collectively. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Bill. And and I I think uh, I, I broadly agree with, with what you're saying, that what we know now as we do uh, more rigorous textual studies of, e of each of these books, uh, uh, we can especially see, I, I, I think the Book of Mormon is, is a bit of a special case. I'm personally thoroughly unpersuaded by the various theories that have come up, whether it be Solomon Spalding, Ethan Smith, and various other people, you know, that the, the Book of Mormon is, is in some way heavily a borrowing project. Uh, uh, so I, I think there you're left a little bit more with the question of whether it just came out of Joseph Smith's mind, uh, uh, engaging with his, the culture of the day, as we've been talking about. But with the other I, I do think it raises different questions about borrowings, whether from other scriptural texts or, as you say, from commentaries uh, and other things like that. Um, and and I, I think we, um, uh, as, as you say, some of the scholarship is coming out of BYU. I mean, this 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 is not you know, sort of anti-Mormon scholarship that is uh, you know pointing us in these directions. The the Church's Gospel Topics essay on the Book of Abraham uh, certainly leaves the door wide open for a catalyst theory, although it entertains other theories. As, as well, so uh, so I, I think that the church, the church hierarchy, and and scholars who are employed by the church are becoming more comfortable with these. And I think you're exactly right to ask the question: What does it mean for for the rest of us? Uh, when I because I think you're right. I think Joseph Smith um, had a, a deep and abiding sense that he was translating the actual words of actual prophets uh, and that he was producing these ancient texts in, in the modern day. 
Uh, I think he was very serious about that. I think he was very sincere about that. I think we also have to recognize that that he was in a culture that had a kind of, um, I think, what we would now say, a kind of naive sense of the way that scripture works. This is all pre-higher criticism. I mean, they didn't really understand even uh, fully the way that the Bible had been put together and, and some of these kinds of things. And so everybody around him would have had what we again, now would say is, uh, is, a, is a relatively naive approach to, to Scripture. And this has been handed down, and there's, this remains, I, I think, the kind of principal hermeneutic and the principal way that we've approached Scripture within the Church. And I think now, uh, given uh, the knowledge that we have, given the textual studies that are being done, I think now we're having to grapple with this and, and stare a little bit more honestly uh, at, uh, in, in, in the face of some of these, uh, some of these issues. So what, what, how, what, how do I think about these things? I personally am basically fully on board with the catalyst theory of the Book of Abraham. I'm not an Egypt, Egyptologist, so I can't comment on some of the particular things, but I trust the scholarship that I've read, uh, people on, on various sides, um, that what we have doesn't in any way correspond to uh, the ancient records, that at least that we have access to. Um, yeah, the missing scroll theory seems a little convenient to me. Um, and so, so I'd, I'd prefer to deal with what we have in front of us. And I'm perfectly comfortable with the kind of catalyst theory. And uh, again, it's, it's, a, it is a kind of paradox. It, it's a bit of a head scratcher to figure out what is God doing, uh, in, in terms of getting Joseph Smith to produce this text, which I think is foundational for Mormon theology. I mean, there's, there's, there's some stuff in the book of Abraham, um, that I think led us down some, uh, troubled and troublesome paths, uh, uh, particularly in, in the ways that some people have read race um, uh, out, of, out of the book of Abraham. But I actually think the cosmology there is absolutely central to the theology that Joseph Smith develops later in his life, especially in Nauvoo, and I think it becomes absolutely core to what is uh, distinctively Mormon about our cosmology, our relationship to God. And these are things that I think are deeply true on a fundamental level as a believer. Uh, they're non-testable claims, so, so these are theological claims, they're not historical claims. But for me, they resonate deeply, and one of the reasons I, I love Mormonism is because of the theology that develops uh, uh, partly out of the Book of Abraham. So I'm I'm willing to have a pretty high tolerance level uh, for whatever cognitive dissonance uh, either Joseph Smith would have to have as if, if he was confronted with some of these things, or that maybe even that we have to have in reading them, uh, because for me that the whole ends up being far greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, I, I feel much the same way about the, the, his, his Bible translation pro, uh, project. Um, you know, th this is this is all happening as he seems to be wrestling with his own identity as a translator. On the one hand, he's just had this miraculous uh, a translating experience through the Book of Mormon, but then he gets into gets back into a kind of more academic mode, especially in Kirtland, where he's studying Hebrew and so forth. So he always seems to recognize there's a kind of tension there between different models of translation, and he always seems sort of drawn towards uh, a, a more academic or traditional model of, of translation. And um, but but again, what what we always get with Joseph Smith, or at least what I see us always getting, is uh, a sort of remarkable creativity 
And if you're a believer, you think that that's inspired or revealed uh, in, in which he's able to deal with stuff that's surrounding him. And this corresponds to his theology of creation, that, that God, it's not ex nihilo, but that God organizes existent matter. And I think Joseph Smith does much the same thing. He takes the theological matter around him and organizes it in beautiful and profound ways. I'm personally, per, I'm personally very comfortable with that process and seeing God as having some kind of guiding hand in it. I'm not sure of the percentages. I'm not sure of, you know, again, if you try to pin me down on which verse is Joseph Smith and which verse is God, uh, I, I, I'm just not sure how productive that that conversation is. But, but for me, um, I, I see and hear and feel a, a, a kind of, uh, a, of godliness behind it, which is why I'm attracted to the theology. Can I gotcha. do a follow-up question here, Bill? Please. I'm sorry, I was asking for Bill, but for you too, of course, Professor Mason. Um, just a few comments about what you said. Um, I agree with you that there are some instances that we see in the historical record where Joseph Smith seems to be drawn toward a more literal or conventional translation model, especially when we look at uh, the book of Abraham and the different methods that he apparently was involved in. Uh, that tends to make me think that when Joseph Smith is talking about translation, he seems to be talking about it more in the way we would normally think of translation, which is a translation from one language into another. I did want to go to the book of Abraham, the essay. And the only reason I made that point was because there seems to be the shift going on to try and make translation something different than translating from Japanese into English or or I think, as Joseph Smith thought of it, reformed Egyptian into English or even right. uh, Egyptian in the papyrus scrolls into English. Um, the, the Book of Abraham on the essay, you mentioned that there are several models that are put forward, and Bill and I have talked about this essay a number of times. It seems to put forward about four or five different ways to explain the situation with the Book of Abraham. And I do want to give kudos to the church for coming out in this essay and uh, I'll say finally, uh, admitting in an official source that the, uh, the Joseph Smith papyri, as they've come to be known perhaps largely in part because of Hugh Nibley and his research, the Joseph Smith papyri that were rediscovered and that do have uh, something to do with the papyri that were translated by Joseph Smith in order to come up with the text of the Book of Abraham as we have it today, that of all the models that are put forward in that essay, none of them say what it was that I was taught in the church. I joined in the late 1970s as an 18-year-old, for the record, and have been a member for about 40 years now this year. But none of them say, here we have the papyri which were finally discovered through a fortuitous circumstance back, I think it was in 68 or so. And here we have the translation that Joseph Smith produced. And they are the same. Based on what I grew up learning, that's what I would have expected to have had happen, or if not exactly word for word the same, to have a huge correspondence. But then what we find out is that the name Abraham is even mentioned in it. It's a common funerary text. It has nothing to do with the papyri that was recovered that Joseph Smith used to translate the book of Abraham with the actual text of the book of Abraham itself. So my question or comment or observation has more to do with the fact that it seems that this is something that has been taught from Joseph Smith's time, where I think it was pretty indisputably taught by him yes. and understood by his followers and his scribes to be what it was he was doing. Um, and then we come to this point where 
I feel like the church was forced, first off, by the finding of the scrolls, or the, the fragments, and then by the dissemination of this information through the internet to a large uh, majority, or at least a large section, of believing members of the church, that the church had to come out and admit there's nothing there, there's no correspondence there, and that is what has generated uh, the proliferation of these different responses. And the last thing I'm going to say, and I'd like you to comment on this, is that it occurred to me some time ago, uh, and I think that I was a, uh, a believer, or at least a considerer of the, um, the catalyst theory that you've mentioned, is that at some point I have to recognize for myself that when we get to the catalyst theory of the book of Abraham, which is basically that it has the texts have nothing to do, there's no correspondence between the texts, but there was something about Joseph Smith's belief or possession of these scrolls that led him into receiving a revealed, uh, authentic, in some way, scriptural text relating to Abraham that had nothing to do with what was on the scrolls. Um, at some point, it occurred to me that we get to an explanation, which is not only different from what the church has taught for over 100 years and continues to teach, I think, uh, largely today, uh, but we get to a point where we have a theory that is indistinguishable from an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, I think it's quite different from an intentional fraud because I think Joseph Smith uh, uh, was quite sincere in believing that he was translating the words of Abraham. Uh, so he could be wrong about that. Uh, but that's different than knowing that he was wrong and then misrepresenting uh, the facts. So, right. so I and I, I understand what you're saying, and I don't mean to interrupt. Uh, all I mean is this, is that from my own point of view, I can't read Joseph Smith's mind. I can't read his heart. I like to try and attribute the best of motives to people, because usually that's where the truth lies or closer to that. But all I'm saying is that when we finally have a chance to have the papyrus scrolls and compare it with the text of the Book of Abraham, there's no correspondence. So therefore, there's a theory out there that is... I'm not saying it is an intentional fraud. I want to make that clear. But it came to me that the catalyst theory is indistinguishable from Joseph Smith having simply intentionally perpetrated a fraud. In other words, under both scenarios, the catalyst theory or the intentional fraud theory, we would then expect for the text of the Book of Abraham to have nothing to do with what was actually in the Egyptian on the scrolls. Sure. I mean, it, it, yeah, in, in that regard, it'd be similar. It, uh, but of course, it's it, it goes in completely different directions from there. And and I think those trajectories are significant. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly agree with you there. Yeah. And the last thing I would say, and this is just a little comment, and I expect that uh, you'll probably agree with it, that when it comes to Joseph Smith's developing theology and the scriptures that he was producing, uh, by whatever means, including the book of Abraham, which I agree with you is quite significant. I think there's probably a little bit of a chicken and the egg issue as to whether he, the scriptures he, are, he is producing are then uh, catapulting him into new uh, theology or new understandings, or whether it's his new understandings and new theology that is becoming manifest in his scripture, if I made that clear at all. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And it, it seems to me it's an iterative process. Uh, I mean, the scriptures would call it line upon line uh, that uh, as, as he as he sort of uh, begins to untangle or, or consider or ask questions about a particular doctrine, principle, uh, something like that, that's, uh, that that starts to spin out in, in different ways. So, uh, so again, I, I think it's very rare, um, uh, if ever, that something comes to Joseph Smith just out of the blue. Uh, we, we can, uh, I think in every case or virtually every case, I don't want to make an absolute claim, uh, you know, trace back some kind of intellectual, religious, spiritual genealogy to that idea, whether it be to his own biography, right? And we know that, for instance, the, the theological significance of the, the death, death of his brother Alvin and what that meant for his soteriology later on, uh, or the cultural influences that, that he was, uh, uh, that he was responding to, or the theological ideas that, that, that developed out of that. So I, I, uh, I think it's very much an iterative process. Again, uh, you know, uh, from a faithful perspective, that's called continuing revelation. Uh, and, and I, uh, you uh, know, per- Professor Mason, I'm sorry. I'm just a small yeah. town lawyer. And honestly, I don't know. Can you tell me what you mean by iterative? Yeah, essentially in conversation with itself and building, uh, uh, build, building upon itself. And, and so that, uh, so Joseph Smith would receive an idea, he, uh, or a revelation or, or he would encounter something. He would respond to it. It would respond to him. I mean, and, and so it's, it's a, essentially an organic process that builds over time, uh, conversationally or dialogically. Final question about the book of Abraham. Uh, for me at least, I'm sorry. Do you think, Professor Mason, that it would be fair to characterize the Book of Abraham as modern-day pseudepigrapha? Uh, and what, what do you what do you mean by that? By modern-day pseudepigrapha? Well, by by of course by pseudepigrapha, you know what I mean by yeah. uh, taking one's writings and then putting them in the mouth of someone right. who is ancient, such as Abraham, in order to give them authoritative weight that they would not otherwise have. Uh, what I mean is, do you think it would be fair to characterize this as Joseph Smith's own teachings or ideas uh, being put in the mouth of Abraham when Abraham actually never wrote this in the first place? Yeah, I'm, I'm personally not uncomfortable uh, with that idea. Uh, with the, the only caveat I would give is that uh, if... If something is, uh, uh, if if we were to believe that the Book of Abraham is revelation, then in some way it's coming uh, through Joseph Smith uh, from heaven, even though narrated through the voice of Abraham. Uh, you know, how does that relate to pseudepigrapha? I think that becomes an interesting conversation, but but in in general, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea um, because again, I personally don't uh, don't find reason to believe that the Book of Abraham, as we have it now, uh, is the product of a translation of an actual text written by Abraham that Joseph Smith had in front of him, uh, and so in some respect. Uh, there, there are some missing links there, and so whether we call that pseudepigrapha or just straight up revelation, uh, the, those categories matter. Uh, but I, I don't think it's it's completely wrong to think about it in those categories.
Okay, thank you for All your right. answer. I think that Bill is probably getting a little concerned with the time that I'm spending and that we're spending on this because I know he has five questions. Yeah. And our time is somewhat limited, so I apologize, Bill. You take it away. Okay, so I want to ask, I want to feed off what we've been talking about, which is the, the Joseph Smith translation productions, and I want to work it into the next question, which is, I assume you would do that with each of these things. So if we said, like, with the Book of Moses, there's too much New Testament material for this to be the actual writings of Moses. So we we would need, as Mormons collectively, to make space for that not to be the literal stories from Moses' life. And that in the inspired translation, rather than ancient concepts being restored, at least not in totality, that we'd also make space that some of the inspired translation of the Bible is simply the best commentary of Joseph's day as seen by Joseph Smith in using Adam Clark. And um, we could apply it again to the Book of Abraham, to the Book of Mormon, that Mormon Mormonism as an institution is going to have to, going forward, make more and more space that these stories are not imposed as the literal ideology of these ancient prophets. Is that fair to say, Patrick? Yeah, I think so. And, and for me, the whole key is that we don't have to read Scripture like fundamentalist Protestants do. I mean, you know, sort of all of the assumptions behind even the conversation we've had for the past 45 minutes, uh, it, these are assumptions about Scripture that come from fundamentalist Protestantism. Uh, this is not the way Catholics read Scripture throughout history. This is not the way uh, I think even that Joseph Smith or Brigham Young read Scripture. But but the way that we're thinking about it in terms of the literalism, the historicity, uh, all these kinds of things, this presupposes a certain reading of Scripture and approach to Scripture that comes that is a very modern thing and basically comes to us through evangelical fundamentalist Protestantism over the past couple of hundred years. And I think Mormons don't have to read Scripture that way. I don't feel captive to read Scripture uh, the way that fundamentalist, uh, you know, my fundamentalist friends read the Bible. Um, and Perfect. so I'm perfectly comfortable with the scholarship that suggests there's no such person as Job, but it's still Scripture. So I'm perfectly comfortable yeah. with, with saying you know, the, the scriptural production that is in the voice of Moses or Abraham doesn't actually have to be the voice of, of Moses or Abraham to be scripture, even if that's what Joseph Smith thought, because, again, he was operating in a particular cultural context of the way that scripture worked. Perfect. And and I, I want to just make a comment here so that we acknowledge it's not the member's fault that we have done that. Like, if we're honest no, with ourselves, okay. and I'm hoping I'm asking you to agree or not agree. Mormonism institutionally imposed the scriptures that way. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and this is, this is part of a particular, especially 20th century history of the way that we have read scripture. Brigham Young read scripture in a totally different way. Uh, and if anybody's interested, they should go read Phil Barlow's book, Mormon, Mormons and the Bible. Um, but this is a 20th century uh uh, essentially construct or product that we have where we learned to read scripture and doubled down on certain claims, be, it, which I think were more or less learned or imported uh, from other religious traditions who had a you know pretty strong influence on the way that Americans read scripture or thought that a, a scripture should be read. Uh, but that's not the only way to read scripture. Right. As you've as you've hinted at, this might be one of the things that we've overloaded the truth cart with. Um, I, I want to lead into a question then about modern day prophets and playing off of what, all the things we've just talked about, which is when I look at ancient scripture, I was taught by Mormonism 
as well as taught to interpret the scriptures in Mormonism a certain way. I see Moses part the sea. I see Elijah call down the fires of heaven. I see prophets in the Book of Mormon strike critics dumb for three days. And when I look at the last 170 years, 185 years of Mormonism, I don't get the feeling the, the, in an age of verifiable history, in an age where we can observe the world around us as, as a mass of people collectively with our smartphones, newspapers, media, I look at these 15 men leading the church, and I have no reason other than to say it's possible, maybe, we don't know, which I think isn't fair. When I look at these 15 men, generation to generation, all the way back to Joseph Smith, I don't see power to restore an ear on the side of someone's head. I don't see the power to call down fires. I don't see the power to turn somebody uh, into a mute for three days. I don't see the power to um, part seas. What I see are 15 men doing the best they can as 15 human beings with no more power than the rest of us in terms of supernatural God magic. And so it forces me into two observations. One is that modern-day leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't have the same kind of God magic that ancient prophets had based on the scriptures. And the second observation is that if I use my reason and logic the most likely conclusion is neither did those uh, ancient prophets either, that those stories were also just mythical stories. And as just in talking about the book of Moses or the book of Abraham or the Mormon, is it not fair to in time and say in an age of unfairy, it would have been much easier to create these stories, to try to connect people with God, to use exceptional examples of supernatural God magic, when in reality the most reasonable conclusion is that those are myth stories as well, and that that supernatural God magic probably didn't happen either. Great question. Um, so I'm going to start by by saying that as a believer, uh, I believe in miracles, and uh, I've actually. Uh, seen them in my life, and I think lots of people can, and uh, uh, seen them very, very close to home uh, in terms of uh, in, in my own family and and with the the life of my wife. Um, and so I, I actually do believe uh, in miracles and things that cannot be explained rationally uh, or by any scientific means that we have available to us. Uh, but uh, I. Uh, I absolutely grant uh, your, your question, and, and I think you're asking it in the right way in, in terms of saying, you know, they're, uh, given that we don't see seas parting uh, on a regular basis uh, or ever in, in, you know, recorded history, uh, you know, and, and, some, and some of these things, what do we make of, of them? And I'm, uh, Again, personally, uh, I'm willing to go down the route of saying, you know, these were stories that the people told in order to to get at a deeper meaning about 
the relationship of God and humanity and the, the saving and redeeming work of God, uh, that, that God does have power. Uh, and so that we're going to tell this in very dramatic ways uh, in, in order to essentially teach morals and lessons to people. I think that's a I think that's a very real possibility. Um, but I also, um, you know, uh, maybe I'm uh, just naive enough to believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave on the third day. And once I admit for that, then a whole host of possibilities come into uh, into the equation. And so I do believe that God somehow has the power to part seas if he wants to. Of course, we have that happening exactly once in Scripture. So it's not like this happens all the time. And so the fact that Russell M. Nelson doesn't do it invalidates his status as a prophet uh, any more than it would mean that Micah wasn't really a prophet because he didn't part seas. Uh, so, so I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind is that actually most of the um, and, and I, I assume you're using the, the phrase supernatural. And unfortunately, that's where the recording cut off. We got through with the first issue in its entirety. We were just broaching, just beginning to tip our toes into the waters of the second issue when the recording failed. I think Bill Reel and I both agree that the discussion of the other four issues was just as interesting as the discussion of the first issue, which is why it is we were so upset that we lost it due to a glitch in the recording software, and why it is that we are still hopeful to be able to get Patrick Mason once again on the air to re-interview him on those four additional issues. I hope you enjoyed that part of the interview with Patrick Mason on the first issue relating to Joseph Smith's translation projects. I certainly want to thank Patrick Mason for agreeing to be interviewed not only by Bill Reel but also by Radio Free Mormon and wish him the best in all of his future projects. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs>